From Romans 8, St. Paul writes, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor trials in the present, nor any trial to come, neither height, nor depth, nor all of creation can ever separate us from the love of God poured out in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been having fun all summer long. <sighs> Darn it, now I've got that Beach Boys song in my head. But be that as it may, I personally have been having fun all summer long. Great Lutheran fun, as we've read each week this summer a passage from Martin Luther's magnum opus, his greatest work, that being his letter to the Romans, which Martin Luther to be found to be so substantive and transformative that he regarded it as the greatest book of the Bible there is. So great, as I mentioned before, he counseled all Christians to memorize it, which, full disclosure, I have not done. As of today, we are now halfway through the book, where we now come to the end of part one of the book, which Paul does end today with a crescendo accompanying a refrain, which would be, if we weren't so darn reservedly Lutheran, followed by a bold and loud amen. I mean, can we even do that? Can I have an amen? Can I have an amen? Can I have an amen? 
Okay, now that's gonna come in handy because that wasn't terrible. That was actually almost good. So, <laughs> save it. We're gonna need that later. The book of Romans, and thus this first section of Romans, begins with Paul expansively and boldly making the case that people are what he calls justified in their relationship with God. I've told you in the past when I think of that kind of churchy word justified used spiritually in the spiritual realms, I think of how we use that word justified in the realm of word processing when we say that we justify a margin which means to line it up straight with the edge of the page. What Paul is talking about is how it is that people are lined up right and straight in their relationship with God. And here's the deal. According to Paul, whereas, whereas pretty much every religion there is will tell you that it's important to be lined up straight in your relationship with God, kind of the point, most all religions by and large will tell you, and by the way, according to both Paul and Luther, a lot of Christians who've forgotten what Christianity actually is will also try to tell you that the way to be lined up in your relationship with God is to be good enough at following enough of God's rules thus to be deemed worthy of being welcomed into a relationship with God, at which point you are justified into that lined up, straightened up relationship with God based on the quality of your religious and ethical efforts. Paul, long story short, in Romans and elsewhere, calls BS on that kind of religious logic, proclaiming instead that we are straightened up in our relationship with God, not by our efforts or goodness, but by God given faith in Jesus' efforts and his goodness and his forgiveness and his grace and his love. Paul's adult speak religious turn of phrase for saying that is that we are justified by grace through faith, not by works of the law. Which as it turns out is a some, the thought that some religious people take exception to because they think it should be harder than that to be straightened up in your relationship with God. I mean, <laughs> anybody can do this. I mean, it should be harder than that, right? Uh, these complainers, in my opinion, generally live with the belief that they are actually better uh, religiously and morally speaking than most people they know and they think that their religious and moral betterness is something they should be recognized and rewarded for. They think in other words that this wonderful relationship with God that they have and other people don't has somehow been earned at least in part by their better than others religious and moral efforts. When I think about people who have come to think that, I imagine a child who for some reason has come to think that the reason they are loved by a parent is because they've followed enough of the parent's laws and rules thus to earn love. If a child thinks that, is that a relationship that is justified? That is to say a relationship that is lined up straight the way a relationship between a child and a parent is meant to be? Oh my goodness, no, right? Following rules and guidelines doesn't earn love. Giving loving rules and guidelines proceeds from love that wasn't ever meant to be earned. And if that relationship is defined in any other way, then call it what you will, but do not call it love. And so too, says Paul in Romans 1, 2, and 3, we are justified 
lined up in our relationship with God. Not when we convince ourselves how perfect or good we are, but when we believe how perfectly loved we are just the way we are. In Romans 4 through 7, uh, Paul then deals with some questions, um, follow-up questions, as well as some follow-up pushback that he found himself getting a lot of um, from religious people um, who, who, when he told them that God didn't love them because they were really good at keeping religious rules, uh, but rather God loved them because God loved them on their best days rules-wise as well as on their worst ones, the most common pushback being the one he responds to in Romans 6 where he talks about people who say, well, that all, that all, gosh, that all sounds good, Paul. Um, we're not made right in our relationship with God by what we do, but rather by, by faith in what Jesus has done. So I guess what I'm hearing you say is it doesn't matter what we do. Uh, party on, live it up. We looked at that theme kind of in depth a few weeks ago, but just as a reminder, Paul's big picture response to that um, was to say that discovering you are loved, no matter what you do, then to decide to do whatever in hell you please, isn't the stuff that living is made of. That's the stuff that dying is made of. Which leads to a really big picture point, Romans-wise, that being that you don't obey God's loving desires truly to be loved. You obey God's loving desires truly to live and to bring some love and life to others as you do. Dorothy, who was on our Tanzania team, uh, was at Walmart this week with a uh, shopping cart completely full of student notebooks. A woman said to her, are you a teacher? Dorothy said, no. The woman said, so why all the notebooks? Dorothy said, for school kits. My church tends to children overseas. The woman thought and then said, I don't do enough for charity. Thank you for what you're doing. And then she gave Dorothy a $100 bill for uh, notebooks for children overseas. Did that woman, in that moment, buy or earn her way into the fullness of God's love for her by her good work? No, she did not. She, in that moment, momentarily remembered what it means more fully to be the humans we were created to be. You don't obey God's loving desires truly to be loved. You obey God's loving desires truly to live and to bring some love and life to others in doing so. Then comes Romans 7, which I want to suggest no chapter in the Bible is more honest than when it comes to describing the human condition. Romans 7 being the chapter where Paul says essentially, you know how I just told you that we aren't saved by what we do, but it's still important what we do? Well, that said, let me tell you also that when it comes to the things I do and the things I don't do, I personally am a hot mess sometimes. Because I know the good things I should do, and I even want to do, but I don't do them. And then there are other things I shouldn't do, and I don't even want to do them, but I do them. Romans 7 is a terribly complicated chapter that might be the most complicated chapter in the Bible, except for the fact that I think we all know what he's talking about. That being the complicatedly simple truth that oftentimes we are our own worst enemy. Paul being Paul doesn't end that line of reasoning by saying, now here's what we each of us personally need to do personally to fix that situation. He says, rather, thanks be to God 
that even though I surely am sometimes my own worst enemy, even at my worst, precisely at my worst, there nevertheless still is there the love of God wrapped around me in the arms of my own best friend, our Lord Jesus Christ. Which now takes us to Romans 8 which we have actually been reading for three weeks now, and which I regard as one of the truly great chapters in all of Scripture. And where Paul in our text for today, having so transparently acknowledged his own internal conflicts and weakness and struggles when it comes to living the life he wants as a Christian to live, but nevertheless there discover once again the grace of God, which meets him in that struggle, now again very transparently acknowledges his own internal conflicts and weakness and struggles when it comes to praying the prayers he wants to pray. Once again, then, to discover that the solution is not him trying harder to do what he can do, but rather God, in this case, God the Holy Spirit, doing what God can do and does do. So Paul writes, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words, and God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. <clears throat> you have all known times in your life, in the life of someone you've loved, you've all known times when there just are no words. There are just sighs, or as that word can actually also be translated, groans. Too deep for words. In those times, Paul says, sighs and groans are not the language of our inability to pray. Rather, sometimes sighs and groans are the deepest prayer language there is, for they are the vocabulary of prayers which are so deep they transcend words. And so when we, when we sigh and groan not knowing how to pray, Paul invites us to think of those sighs and groans as prayers, which the Spirit then takes from us to God the Father wordlessly to sigh and groan on our behalf. And God, says Paul, understands exactly what the sighs and the groans mean. Sometimes Paul says, sighs and groans are not the language of our inability to pray. Sometimes rather, sighs and groans are the deepest prayer language there is, for they are the vocabulary of prayers which transcend words. Paul goes on, we do know, he says, and here comes another Romans 8 treasure, we do know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. Let's be clear, uh, Paul is clearly not here saying that all things are good, which is good because some things surely aren't. Nor is Paul saying here that all things that happen are somehow the will of God, things which God wanted to happen and made happen, which a whole lot of things surely aren't because God is love and a whole lot of things that happen in the world don't have a thing to do with love and so they don't have anything to do with God. But the profound and powerful thing Paul does say here is that we know, we know that all things, things that perhaps God did will, but even things God did not will, because they were neither good nor loving, 
Nevertheless, says Paul, all things, when God's love is in the mix, will work together for good, for the loving purposes of God. And how do we know that? Well, as Christians, we know that because above all, we know that when the worst and most hateful thing the world has ever wronged was hated upon Jesus on a cross, God knew that where divine love could work its way to from there was Easter. For all things, says Paul, including a cross, will and do work together for, for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, which isn't something we can always see. It is something we are by God invited always to believe. Which means that when tough times are tough and wrongs are wrong, a good prayer always to pray or even just a prayer to sigh or groan is the prayer, God, by the power of your spirit, lead me to the good place that you and I together can go from here. Paul goes on, for those whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family and those whom God predestined God also called and those whom God called God also justified and those whom God justified God also glorified um, predestination is a word hardly ever used in scripture it's used here I want to tell you that as I'm, far as I'm concerned that concept of predestination over the centuries has been turned into a theological wormhole which I'm not even going to crawl into today uh, the entrance to that wormhole being when people use the word predestination in defense of a belief that God way ahead of time um, chooses some people for heaven and others for hell uh, I can't tell you if that's true or not. Full disclosure, I'm pretty skeptical, but then again, I'm not God. I do want to note that in this particular passage, Paul doesn't say that people are predestined for heaven or hell. Doesn't say that at all. He says, rather, the people are predestined, quote, to be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn within a large family, end quote. Here's what I take from that, not going into the wormhole. Your destiny, the thing you were created for, is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. One day, by the grace and saving power of God alone, that will mean being conformed to the image of the risen from the dead Christ when he raises you from the dead to usher you into the fullness of all that he has prepared for the life to come. But in the meantime, there is life here and now where all that he has promised is not yet something fully to be seen, but rather something we with the whole world can yet with sighs and groans but long for. Here and now, in this life, I hear Paul saying, yours is also the destiny of being conformed to the image of Jesus. By being just like Jesus, the love of God, active and alive in this world, in the flesh, thereby, with every loving thing you say or do, giving this sin-broken and longing for healing world a taste of the thing love which alone does in the end hold the future of you and of all in its hands beyond that I have nothing else to say except say that here comes the refrain 
which Paul has been building toward for eight chapters of Romans, this is the end of the first section of Romans, and which he has been crescendoing toward for the length of this eighth chapter of Romans, which is a loud and bold refrain, which sounds like this, what then shall we say to all of this? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who in indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which takes me to the theme above all themes in Romans and in this sermon. Uh, that theme being the theme, the good news about nothing. For here it is, nothing, nothing, nothing in life or death, nothing that happens or doesn't happen, nothing, not even one damned thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sisters and brothers, I'm here to tell you that news is so good it's got to be said out loud and by more than just me. So repeat after me, nothing, nothing, nothing. Nothing about living. Nothing about dying. You're getting softer. We need to get louder. Nothing about sinning. Nothing about anything. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. 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 Okay, Lutherans, it's time. The hymn of the day is number 622.